morning, everyone. Glad to see you all here this morning, and welcome to those who are joining online. Uh, if you're new with us, and I got a couple of emails saying that some people were going to come this week that hadn't been before, so I don't know where you are out there, but make sure you connect with me afterwards. And, uh, but if you're new with us or you're new online, my name is Paul Graham, and I'm lead teaching pastor here at Lakeside, and we've been going through a series called The Knowledge of the Holy, in which we have a book by A.W. Tozer, which is a great book that we've put in a lot of your hands in our life groups. We want you to read that book. And I've heard that some of you are not reading it. This is your official scolding. <laughs> read the book. Each chapter is only about three pages. They're not big. So read the book. Be prepared for your life group meetings. Listen to the sermon online if you miss one and be ready to contribute in the life groups. Um, but we're going through this series, The Knowledge of the Holy, and we're in our final two weeks. Last week was love, this week is holiness, next week is sovereignty. And there's no small attributes of God, but it seems like the last three are some big hitters, right? Love, holiness, sovereignty. And uh, so we're going to finish with a bang. Um, one of the warnings that we took away from last week when we looked at love was to not confuse God's love with other kinds of love, or to even think that God's love is somehow just a better version of our love, like we can understand what love is, and, and God is just perfect in his expression of the love that, that we can imagine. That, that's a wrong way to think of any attribute of God. God is not just a perfect human. He's not just the best of what we can think of. God's love, God's holiness, God's sovereignty, every attribute of God is wholly other, wholly his own, and all of definition of any attribute of God flows from him alone. We don't invent it. It doesn't come from us. And that's true of holiness. Uh, various scholars and interpreters have wrestled with how to describe what holiness is. Just stop and think about it. What do we mean when we say holy, that God is holy? What is holiness? Uh, on, on one hand, in the Bible, if you look at it, holiness means set apart. It is distinct. It is reserved. It is set to one side and consecrated. It's not common, but it's set apart differently for sacred purposes. And God is certainly set apart. He is wholly other. Others see the scriptures referring to holiness as purity. We think of holiness as being pure. The absence of sin or wickedness is holiness. And God is certainly pure, and there's no sin or wickedness present in him. And others lean into descriptions of God's holiness as transcendent. Holiness means that he is high above, that something holy is majestic and infinitely glorious and wonderful in comparison to everything else, and that's what makes it holy. And, and God is that, too. He's certainly transcendent. But just like God is love, God's love is far more and wholly other than our love. And in the same way, God's holiness is far more than just an escalated or elevated idea of holiness that we can think or perceive of. So God's holiness is all of that and more. It's more than just set apart and more than just pure, more than righteous, more than transcendent. It's really all of those ideas combined together and like a hundred other ideas is God's holiness. Only God is holy. We will never be holy like God is holy. We can receive two mercies from God with regard to holiness. The first mercy being his holiness imparted to us. And the second mercy of being gradually made more holy through our lives until we're glorified. As Graham just said, we're all about transformation. And if you think the church is trying to change you, it is. 
God's word is trying to change you. It's trying to make you more holy. And, and we do receive those two mercies from God, the imputation of his holiness and the transformation of being made more holy. But despite that, nothing and no one will ever become what God is in holiness. Even in the age to come, even as we are glorified in heaven, in new bodies, we will be pure and we will be without sin. But God's holiness will still be superior to ours. We will love perfectly then, but both perfect purity and perfect love still won't match God's holiness. We will be new creations. We will transcend these mortal bodies, but we will never out-transcend God. Our holiness will always be an imputed or gifted holiness that comes only as a reflection of the one who is holy. God's holy, and he alone is holy. Just God. And that has implications for us. As we've been unpacking all of these attributes of God, holiness is no different than any of the others in this regard. We've learned that the fact that God is the way God is has massive implications for how the world is, how we are, how we respond to him, and holiness is no different. In fact, it may be the most important attribute in this regard. The holiness of God is far-reaching and has tremendous implications to our existence and how we know and respond to God. And as we've already read this text together, Isaiah 6, 1 to 8, we're going to look at this most important text when it comes to seeing the holiness of God for what it is and responding to that holiness as we should. So let's pray as we consider holiness of God today. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for this text that you've given us through your prophet Isaiah that was for his time and for him and for Israel, and it is for the church and our time and for us as well. And so, Father, help us to see what Isaiah saw, and not just to see it today, but to continue to see it in the days as we go forward, as we know what it means that you are holy. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. So I'm going to start with just a little bit of historical context to understand where this eight verses in Isaiah fits in, because it talks about the history of what's going on, and it's important. First of all, mentioned King Uzziah, and King Uzziah was mostly a very good king in the midst of a line of pretty terrible kings of Israel. His own father, Amaziah, was king before him, and he was not a good king. Second uh, Chronicles 25 says that Amaziah turned away from the Lord. He, he was so bad, in fact, that the people of Israel themselves plotted against their own king and put him to death. And then get this, they put his 16-year-old son on the throne. And I'm not sure how Uzziah said that. It's like, hey, you made me king. Oh, you killed my dad. Okay. Um, But that's how they did things, I guess, back then. And Uzziah, though, ruled for 52 years. And 2 Chronicles 26, if you want to read about his reign, you can go read that chapter, summarizes much of it. Verse 4 says that he set himself to seek God. And he was a good king for a long time. He prospered as a king. He built towers. He engineered cisterns in the wilderness. He had flocks. He had herds. Israel prospered. He built up a well-equipped army. He commissioned skillful men to make machines uh, that could hurl rocks and, and arrows so he could, you know, ballista and catapults, I guess, or trebuchets, whatever they call them. Uh, And he had all of this stuff, and Israel was safe, and it was wealthy, and he sought God. But then in verse 16, it says, but when he became strong, his heart was so proud that he acted corruptly, and he was unfaithful to the Lord his God, for he entered the temple of the Lord to burn incense on the altar of incense. 
You see, Uzziah wanted to be both king and priest. And he entered into the temple where only the consecrated priests were meant to go, where only those who had been declared holy could go. And he tried to burn incense that only the priests could burn in the presence of God. And a whole pile of priests, there was like 80 of them, went in after him to warn him and confront him. But even as he's standing there holding this brazier of burning coals, God strikes Uzziah with leprosy. And he's quarantined for the rest of his life and never able to enter even the temple courtyards again. That's the historical context. This is what Isaiah is speaking into. This is when God gives this vision. A king who has become proud and has reached too far and thought too highly of himself. And then in the meantime, Isaiah is prophesying in Israel. Because as Uzziah is declining, Israel is almost imitating their king. This once good king is becoming prideful and falling away from God. And the nation is likewise. And so if you were to read the first five chapters before you get to Isaiah 6... It essentially makes up one long, unbroken prophecy of God against the wickedness of Israel. Uh, Isaiah 1, 2, very first, like the second verse of the whole book says, Listen, O heavens, and hear, O earth, for the Lord speaks. Sons I have reared and brought up, that's Israel, but they have revolted against me. And then it's like five chapters of God speaking. You know, if you have it in the NASB, which is a good version, or if you have it in a formatted version, it's all almost in poetry form, because it is God speaking almost that whole five chapters. And and at one point near the end, six times in Isaiah chapter 5, Isaiah, or God, through Isaiah, declares woe upon Israel. Woe to the greedy land grabbers in verse 8. Woe to the idle drunkards that waste their life in verse 11. Woe to the liars in verse 18. Woe to those who call evil good in verse 20. Woe to the self-important in verse 21. Woe to dishonest authorities who judge corruptly in verse 23. So time and time again, as you read through these first five chapters of Isaiah, God speaks through Isaiah to proclaim woe upon the unclean and the wicked. Woe against the haughty and the pride prideful of Israel, that they will be brought low, that they will be reduced. Just as Uzziah had leprosy and was brought low and diminished, so the nation of Israel, the prideful and the haughty, will be brought low and the wicked will be humbled. This is the scriptural context into which God gives Isaiah this vision. As the king goes, so goes the nation. A king fallen leads to a nation falling apart. And then let's just, with that context in mind, understand what God may be doing here to say, hey, maybe it's time I hit the reset button. I got a whole bunch of people who need to remember who I am. And so God gives Isaiah a vision. In the year of King Uzziah's death, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne Lofty and exalted, with the train of his robe filling the temple, seraphim stood above him, each having six wings. With two he covered his face, with two he covered his feet, with two he flew. And one called out to the other and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the thresholds trembled at the voice of him who called out, while the temple was filling with smoke. And then I said, woe is me, for I am ruined, because I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips. For mine eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. 
And then one of the seraphim flew to me with a burning coal in his hand, which he had taken from the altar with tongs, and he touched my mouth with it and said, Behold, this has touched your lips, and your iniquity is taken away, and your sin is forgiven. And then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send? Who will go for us? And then I said, Here am I, send me. King Uzziah is dead. The once good king has fallen morally and literally. Israel's increasingly corrupt and impure. And God says, you guys need a vision of who I am. And he gives Isaiah, his prophet, this vision so that he can give that vision to his people. And Isaiah gets a vision like has never before been seen of God and not seen again until the apostle John is closing out Revelation 800 years later. So it's in the year of King Uzziah died, Isaiah saw a king who is alive and ruling, a holy king who is not brought low, but who is ascended and who is adorned. He says, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, lofty and exalted with the train of his robe, filling the temple. So there's a living Lord sitting on the throne. Don't don't worry about Uzziah, Israel. Don't worry about earthly kings who fall and who die, there is a living God who sits on the throne right now, all the time. And it's a high throne. It's a lofty throne. The king on that throne is exalted. It's not a low throne of an earthly king, a king brought low. This is a throne of a king high and lifted up. God and his throne are so high, we see here, that Isaiah can barely see him. And I I think in the You know, the New King James or the King James Version, I think the early Anglo-Saxon translators about that medieval period when the Bible was being translated into English, they gave us the word train here, like some royal cape, you know, the train of a royal robe, you know, red and trimmed in fur, and it kind of trails out behind the monarch for many yards, and that image of a train of a robe has kind of stuck in our minds, but the Hebrew word here is actually just hem. The hem of God's robe filled the space. Isaiah just saw the edge of the garment of God, and that was enough for him to say, wow, this is big, right? There is a throne so big and a king sitting on that throne so huge that just the hem of his garment down where Isaiah is fills the whole temple. Just the hem. This is a lofty throne and a lofty king that Isaiah is looking at. And there's sort of a spatial metaphor that runs all through the book of Isaiah. Once you see it, it's incredible. God is always high and lifted up and exalted, while all others are made low and humbled. Remember, we're looking earlier chapters in Isaiah 2, 9 to 12. says, so the common man has been humbled, the man of importance has been abased, but do not forgive them. Enter the rock and hide in the dust from the terror of the Lord and from the splendor of his majesty. The proud look of man will be abased and the loftiness of man will be humbled and the Lord alone will be exalted in that day. For the Lord of hosts will have a day of reckoning against everyone who is proud and lofty and against everyone who is lifted up that he may be, that they may be abased. The he is the they there, not God. In other words, All through the book of Isaiah, and you'll see it over and over again, not just before chapter 6, but after chapter 6, men decrease, God increases. And notice here in verse 10 that word terror. As God is exalted and the proud are brought low, this is not a comfortable thing that is taking place. 
The, the next few decades are not going to be comfortable for Israel. And as we will see more in this text, this is not going to be an easy meeting for Isaiah at all. Isaiah gets ushered into the presence of the holy, living God, and it is not a cozy, friendly sort of encounter. But there is hope in this encounter as well, which we'll get to. But when you encounter the holiness of God, whatever you think God's holiness is, it starts with terror. And where is this throne room? It says, the hem of the king's robe fills the temple, notice. The throne of this king is in the temple. Uzziah tried to be both king and priest, powerful and holy, ruling and consecrated. But God is the only priest king, holy and powerful. Uzziah had no business even entering the temple offering incense. But God sets his entire throne in the temple, Uzziah is not the consecrated, set-apart, holy king who can enter. God is the set-apart, holy, pure king. His throne is the mercy seat of the holy of holies, where he sits between the angels. Remember that description last week. It's God's throne in the temple. Uzziah should not have been there. God has every right to be there. We also see that the throne of God is also attended and adored. It says, Seraphim stood above him, each having six wings. With two he covered his face, with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And, he, and one called out to the other and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts, and the whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the thresholds trembled at the voice of him who called out while the temple was filling with smoke. Just get this picture, get this image, this vision It was very real for Isaiah that he was given by God. Seraphim means burning ones. And we think of seraphim as a type of angel, but they're not specifically named anywhere else in the Bible. Although it seems pretty clear if you were to fast forward to Revelation 4, 6, that these are the same creatures in Revelation where we're given a little more detail. It says in Revelation 4, And in the center and around the throne, four living creatures full of eyes in front and behind. The first creature was like a lion, and the second creature like a calf, and the third creature had a face like that of a man, and the fourth creature was like a flying eagle. And the four living creatures, each one of them having six wings, are full of eyes around and within, and day and night they do not cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God, the Almighty, who was and is and is to come. You see, God is attended by these magnificent creatures. That we cannot even comprehend that, that Isaiah and John have difficulty describing. And, and not only by these seraphim, these burning ones, he's, he's twice in this text called the Lord of hosts, or in Psalm, the Lord of heavenly hosts. And that word host specifically means army. So whenever in the Bible you read the Lord of hosts, in your mind, it's more accurately you just say the God of angel armies. And he is attended to by not just an army, by armies. So there are armies at God's call. And these angels attending him. Armies of heavenly hosts. Armies of angels at his call. And they adore him and they worship him. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. 
and the whole earth is full of his glory. And one thing you may notice in this text is that it's only in this one place, or you might not have noticed this. You might not have known this because you weren't looking for it. But it is only in this one place, these words of the seraphim directed at God alone, that anywhere in the entire Bible, anything is described with the emphasis of triple repeated words. And that's not insignificant. In English, we have lots of little ways that we convey emphasis when we write or when we speak. Speaking, we change the inflection of our voice. We alter the volume. We may add a superlative word, like it was really good or something. In writing, we would capitalize a whole word or underline it, maybe add 19 exclamation marks after it or a few emojis around it. In your email, don't do that, please. Makes you look like you're nine years old. Um, Apologies to people who use emojis. It's fine. I get it. Language is evolving. I just don't have to like it. Um, But in Hebrew, in both the written and the spoken word, the way of emphasis was expressed in repetition. So Jesus, you'll remember, will say things like, truly, truly, I say to you, or amen and amen. But, but nowhere does Jesus say, truly, 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 do I say to you, or amen, amen, amen. No, no writer anywhere in the Bible uses the three-peat anywhere about anything except here and in Revelation, same scene where the seraphim are declaring the holiness of God. God is not love, love, love. The Bible doesn't tell us that he is wrath, wrath, wrath. God is not just, just, just. But God is holy, holy, holy. And it's the only place that the three-part emphasis is ever used. And if God is holy, 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 then it follows that the whole earth then is full of his glory. Glory is how we describe the holiness of God when it's visible. When, when God's holiness, which is what he is, kind of shines out, we say, well, that's glorious. That's the glory of God. And so glory is the description of God's holiness when it's visible. It sets him apart. It sets God apart as different from everything else in all of creation. Later on, Isaiah says, to whom will you then compare me, this is God speaking through Isaiah, that I should be like him, says the Holy One. The Holy One, the Holy One says, I'm uncomparable. I'm like nothing else. He's in a class by himself. And basically, God's holiness shines out into creation, and we describe that holy shining as his glory, his majesty, his infinite supreme purity and worth shines. His holiness radiates into creation, and his holiness affects everything that it encounters. And if we encounter God's holiness the way that Isaiah is encountering it here, we are compelled to respond to God's holiness. It does not leave anything unchanged. That's the reality of God's holiness. And that's where everything starts. It starts with God. It radiates out into creation. We see it as glory, and it affects everything. God is holy, this text is saying. That's what the first part of this text says clearly about God and his holiness. But the second part is about Isaiah. And we're going to look at the implications of this holiness, its imputation in our response. The second part of the text is about how this holiness then, this holiness of God, lands on Isaiah. How this holiness of God is meant to land on Israel and how it should land on us. 
begins this way in the second half. It says, as Isaiah now responding to the holiness of God, he says, Woe is me, for I am ruined, because I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. That's how, I, that's how Isaiah responds to God's holiness. I'm ruined. Or in the King James, I am undone. I'm coming apart at the seams. I am disintegrated, literally, in the presence of God. The holiness of God radiating, blazing out like a furnace from the throne is ruinous to any unclean thing. And Isaiah, who may have thought he was a pretty okay guy being a prophet of God and all, definitely holier than all of those other Israelites, he discovers he is not holy at all. He thought he might be okay, but not in the presence of God. He's not okay, not clean, not righteous, nor are his people clean or righteous, nor is anyone in the presence of the holiness of God. Even the seraphim covered their eyes. The burning ones don't look directly at God, unshielded. And so Isaiah who has declared woe to Israel nearly a dozen times in the first five chapters of this book, now declares woe on himself. And we can ask ourselves again here, why is it woe? Why is it terror? Why is this not a pleasant meeting for Isaiah to see his God, his loving God, full of mercy and grace? Why is this such terror and woe? It's because the very nature of God's holiness is such that as it radiates outward into creation, nothing unholy can stand it. It's because God just is God. As Tozer says in your book, if you read the chapter this week, whatever is contrary to holiness is necessarily under his eternal displeasure. To preserve his creation, God must destroy whatever could destroy it. And I would state what Tozer says even more fundamentally. Whatever is contrary to God's holiness simply will be destroyed by it. The holiness of God is a refining, cleansing, and purifying force that will not be resisted. And and we see this sort of imagery repeated elsewhere in Scripture over and over again. First, Isaiah says it in chapter 1, where God says it through Isaiah. This is God speaking. I will also turn my hand against you, and I will smelt away your dross as with a lie and remove all your alloy. God says, I'm like a refining fire, and I'm going to get rid of all this wickedness. It's going to come. Zechariah 13 says... It will come about in all the land, declares the Lord, that two parts in it will be cut off and perish, but the third will be left in it. So there is a, there's a bit there that God is trying to preserve. And I will bring the third part through the fire, refine them as silver is refined, and test them as gold is tested. And they will call on my name, and I will answer them. And I will say, they are my people And they will say, the Lord is my God. You see, the holiness of God. God is a refining fire that is purifying all wickedness. Malachi, same thing. 
Malachi 3, but who can endure the day of his coming and who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire and like fuller's soap. He will sit as a smelter and purifier of silver. He will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver so that they may present to the Lord offerings in righteousness. And when you say righteousness, you can almost say holiness because it's definitely a big part of our understanding of holiness is righteousness. I like verse 3 where it says he will sit as a smelter and purifier. And it's almost like passive. Like he's just sitting there. (laughs) And stuff's getting purified around him. God's holiness is like like a blast furnace. It's like a supernova. And when that supernova rises, nothing impure can stand against the holiness of God. Malachi finishes off all the Old Testament prophecy in Malachi chapter 4. This is it. This is the last word. For behold, the day is coming, burning like a furnace, and all the arrogant and every evildoer will be chaff, and the day that is coming will set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts, so that it will leave them neither root nor branch. See, this is what Isaiah is experiencing This is what the holiness of God does to Isaiah, is going to do to the nation of Israel, does to his church, should be doing to us. God is pure, he's clean, he's uncorrupt, he's splendor and majesty, he's beauty, and his holiness is terrible to behold. If there is any unclean thing in us, anything unclean makes his holiness a terror And this is what God must show Isaiah, must show Israel, must show us. He is holy beyond compare. Do not play with the fire of God's holiness. But along with the reality and the the terrible implications of a holy God who cannot deny himself, who just is who he is, and whose purity and holiness manifests itself as wrath and destruction against all wickedness that strikes sin like the heat of a forge strikes impure dross in a metal. With that reality of who God is in this vision to Isaiah, to Israel, to us comes hope. That there is protection and there is shelter from the holiness of God. Our shelter from God's holiness, we will see, is his holiness. We shelter from God within God. Just at that moment, as Isaiah feels himself undone, coming apart like in Malachi, you know, dust and ash, chaff, as, as, as Isaiah is being disintegrated, something happens right then in the throne room. What happens? Imputation happens. Then one of the seraphim flew to me with a burning coal in his hand, which he had taken from the altar with tongs, and he touched my mouth with it. And he said, Behold, this has touched your lips, and your iniquity is taken away. And your sin is forgiven. Can you imagine? Can you imagine that? Oh, man. I can't. Sorry. It's just too good. <laughs> it's just too good. God makes provision for us at his altar. While we're standing there getting disintegrated, getting destroyed by his holiness, 
There's an altar in front of this throne. And, there's, and the altar is burning incense. That's the smoke. And God makes provision for our unholiness. One of the, one of the burning ones, the seraphim, plucks a coal from the braziers of the altar where it's rising up to shield the throne. And he touches the unclean lips of Isaiah, not to torture Isaiah, but to heal him, to cauterize the wound of his mouth, to cauterize the wickedness that keeps seeping from Isaiah's mouth, from the mouths of Israel, from our mouths. Isaiah's mouth is refined with fire. It's cleansed with lie. And this is atonement. Notice this atonement. It comes from the altar of God. And it comes with confession. As Isaiah repents and agrees in his mind with God that God is holy and he is unholy and he is unclean. And after Isaiah's confession comes healing immediately. The forgiveness of his sin. Now, is it an easy experience? No, it is not easy. It will not be comfortable experience to have your sins burned away. I do not know many people who came to the realization of God's holiness and their wickedness and found that realization pleasant. That realization for us, for you, usually comes after a wrestling match. It usually comes after denial and anger and pain at resisting and rebelling against the holiness of God. But God loves you too much not to heal you. He's too holy not to cleanse you. And he will pull that thorn. He will cauterize those lips. He will burn out that impurity. He will pick off the old scabs. He will straighten the crooked limb, even if it hurts, to give you his holiness. Amen. And he will do that so you can stand in his presence. And so from the altar comes imputed righteousness, granted or gifted righteousness. Holiness is just given to us. It's not ours, it's God's. But he gives it to us so that Isaiah is cleansed. Israel is being cleansed. We are being cleansed even as we are counted or imputed or reckoned as clean before God. So how then does Isaiah respond to the holiness of God? And this mercy, as it's being imparted from God to Isaiah, he responds. He says, then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, whom shall I send and who will go for us? Trinity again, sorry. Whom shall I send? Whom will go for us? God Plural, sitting on the throne, the sun is there, the spirit is there, and then I said, here I am, send me. There's no hesitation in Isaiah. There's now no question of who he is. He's gone from being disintegrated to becoming undone, being lost and ruined in the radiance of God's holiness, to knowing that he now is, that he is reintegrated, made whole. Some translations will translate the text there, here I am, like Isaiah is putting up his hand saying, here I am, Lord, over here. But that's not what the text says. The text is, here am I. I I am here, like I'm here, I'm not disintegrated, I'm not destroyed, I'm not ruined, here am I. I am reintegrated, I am made real in the presence of God's holiness. Or literally, it's actually just two words, behold me. It's almost like, like Isaiah is like, look, I exist. <laughs> Wonder of wonders. I still exist. Send me. Behold me. Send me. 
That's how you have to respond to the holiness of God. When you look up and you still exist in the presence of God, and you're still there, and you have his imputed holiness, and he is refining you, then you cannot not serve that holiness once you've seen it. You have to respond to it. If we go back to Malachi chapter 4, where the day of the Lord is dawning like a furnace and it's burning all the wickedness to chaff and ashes, you remember that verse we had it up there? It's coming, it's not going to leave a root or a branch. Well, we go to the next verse in Malachi 4, 2 says, But for you who fear my name, the sun of righteousness will rise with healing in its wings, and you will go forth and skip about like calves from the stall. Oh, it's totally different. This holiness, this, this purifying, unrelenting force of God's holiness is very different for people who fear his name, for people like Isaiah, for people like the remnant of Israel, for people who are grafted into that remnant of Israel like us, who are children of Israel by faith. You fear the holiness of God. You fear the name of God the response is totally different. If you see his terrible beauty and you're safe within his wings, then you skip about like calves from the stall. It's interesting, this word wings, the Hebrew word there is kanaf in Hebrew. It's used over a hundred times in the Old Testament. Sometimes kanaf just means the wings of a bird, you know. Most often, It says the wings of the angels, or seraphim. Kanaf was in Isaiah 6, 1 to 8. When it said they had six wings, it was kanaf. It's the wings of an angel. But additionally, in the Old Testament, in very special cases, the word kanaf also means the edge or the hem of a robe. Like, for instance, when uh, the Moabite Ruth is seeking shelter and restoration at the feet of Boaz... And she says to him in Ruth chapter 3, I am Ruth, your servant. Spread your wings, kanaf, over your servant, for you are a redeemer. Boaz doesn't have wings. It's the hem of his cloak. Spread your cloak over me. Shelter me. Take me as your own, for you are a kinsman redeemer. You can redeem me, Boaz, if you cover me with your kanaf. And here in Malachi, it says, the son of righteousness, great pun, in English, <laughs> the sun, S-U-N, the S-O-N, sun, the sun of righteousness will rise with healing in its wings, like the corona of the sun in a full eclipse. You see the corona out there, the edge of the garment of the sun, the hedge, the hem of the garment. There's healing in the hem of the garment of the sun of righteousness that happens to fill the robe, fill the temple with his glory is the hem of the garment. And so the holy Son of God is rising one day, and the rising of that Son will disintegrate all wickedness and all evil into chaff and ash. But the corona of that Son, the wings, the hem of his robe will cover those that fear him and have received his holiness, and they will not be destroyed, but will leap like spring calves from a stall. What do you do with the holiness of God who's holy like that? You see, you see how any of our ideas of holiness that we just try to you know, get far enough up will somehow approximate God's holiness? They don't. God's holiness is like nothing else. 
Can you see the holiness of God? Can you see God as God? And, and, and don't you dare perceive God as some feeble, weak imitation of him. God is high and lifted up. He's enthroned in his temple. He is fire and smoke in his terrible yet glorious holiness. And the only refuge from God is in God. If not, you would be undone, lost and ruined in the presence of God. And if you don't want to be undone, if you don't want to be lost and ruined, if you don't want to be disintegrated in the presence of this holy God when he comes, then accept the mercy that he has offered. Because from his altar comes the imputation of righteousness, comes provision and shelter. By confession of who he is and our sin, when we confess he's made provision for us to be sheltered and to be with him forever, And from that altar, as we learned in previous weeks, that altar is Jesus. It's his blood that has been sprinkled on that altar. It is through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus that we now have a new covenant to be counted as righteous in the presence of this flaming holiness. And then, when you do that, when you confess and you are safe in the presence of his holiness and counted as holy, he will then give you that second mercy of refining you and purifying you and cleansing you for himself. A kingdom of priests, we are told in Peter, that he is preserving for himself that will cry out forever with the seraphim one day, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God almighty. Let's pray. Father God. We thank you for this word that you give us. Man, we look around today and we think we're not too far off of where Israel was. Shaking our fist at God, being pretty proud, being pretty content in our affluence, right? We got money, we got soldiers, we got laws, we got social safety nets and Medicare, and we got everything that we need, and it is so easy to forget you, not just forget you, but to say we don't need you. And that's what Isaiah thought, and that's what Israel thought. They had it good. But we cannot dare forget (laughs) that you are holy. It's not that you're bad. It's not that you're trying to be violent. It's not that you are anything other than who you are. It's just your holiness will cauterize wickedness out of creation every time it encounters it. God, just you being God makes everything holy, or it destroys it. And so, Father, that changes everything about how we come into your presence. We need to never forget this. Thank you for the vision you gave Isaiah to remind him. Thank you that he proclaimed it to Israel so they would not forget. Thank you that you cleansed Israel and brought your Messiah through Israel to us. Thank you that we have Jesus, the priest king, the one who is seated on the throne, who we can turn to, for shelter as we confess our wickedness and adore your holiness. Father God, make your holiness beautiful to us again. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.